God made dirt, and dirt don't hurt. Right? Now, honestly, never in my life have I believed that. Until recently. Now, as early as the third grade, I can remember bursting into tears because I got dirty. The culprit? Grass stains picked up on my jeans during recess. Sort of the combination of a game of tag, plus the fact that I've always been a lanky, uncoordinated kind of guy. Being dirty was defined to me as what your clothes looked like. See, then I didn't like to get my hands in the dirt because of the definition that I gave to dirt. The staining, defiling, unclean sort of thing. But now, in light of what Jesus says to us today, I want to suggest that getting dirty might actually be related to the survival of our world. This started with me reading an article in The Economist called Bad is Good. Chris Lowry at Bristol University was fascinated by the work of Mary O'Brien at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London in which she was giving an experimental treatment for lung cancer, giving patients the bacteria Mycobacterium vacae. And they discovered when they gave folks this bacteria, that not only did they have fewer symptoms of cancer, but also an improvement in these patients' emotional health, their vitality, and their general cognitive function. And later, research by Lowry discovered that when Mycobacterium vacae was in the body, it's been found to trigger the release of serotonin, which in turn elevates mood and helps to reduce anxiety. Now this little bug that's now being studied further as a possible vaccination against depression and lung cancer and asthma and even lung disease, it's fascinating because it's most often found and at least understood in materials that I love to hate getting on my clothes. Dirt. Mycobacterium vacae is in dirt. It's all over dirt. And one theory suggests that the increase in asthma and allergies over the course of the 20th century are due in a large part to the lack of dirt in our lives. Could it be that this little bacteria has found ways to improve cognitive function and it could possibly even treat cancer and other diseases if we just recognize that God made dirt and dirt don't hurt? This is hard for us to swallow because you and I live in the age of public health departments washing our hands. We can empathize with the confusion of the Pharisees, right? When they say, Jesus, when people don't clean their pots and pans, they get sick. The Torah says so. Common sense says so. What are you doing? Jesus, we teach our children to wash their hands or else they'll be ritually unclean. You've read Leviticus. What are you doing? Jesus Christ, microbiology is pretty clear that you are leading these people to death. Your disciples, what on earth are you doing? Jesus' short answer to the Pharisees is that you and I, that we are focusing our attention too much on the wrong thing. 
too much emphasis on the wrong syllable, as they say, causing us to forget the true source of sin and strife. The problems that ail us come not from our behaviors, but from what inspires those behaviors, the heart. In the Hebrew worldview, when Jesus would have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul, it wasn't a plea to cover all of these places, to check the box each time, but a recognition that all of our being is tied together. An understanding that all of what we do comes from within. From things that are deeply seated in our souls. That affect us in deeply profound ways. It's what's within, not what's outside of us, that leads to the biggest problems. You can use Jesus' list of problems and apply it to the whole variety of social ills. Now, if Pope Francis were quoting Mark 7 in his latest encyclical on climate change a couple months ago, he might have said that it's not fossil fuels, the sort of visible behavior, but the human consumption patterns that are within our hearts, those consumption patterns which then affect the use of fossil fuels, that that what's within is defiling us and leading us to, and here's Jesus' list, fornication with the planet. Theft of its resources, murder of its species, adultery of the spirit, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things come from within us and they defile an earth. Or as Jesus said, a person. If it's race, you might say that the problem is not the outward signs of poverty, but the deep issues of racial bias within every single one of us that lead to fornication, murder of the possibilities of harmony, adultery, avarice, wickedness against one another, deceit as we lie about our biases, envy of what others have, Slander against those poor who make bad choices. Pride that we think we deserve our wealth. Folly that we think we've earned our white majority privilege and the assets pertaining thereto. So what's the good news? There's not a whole lot in this passage, to be honest. But let's think in the way of the negative. If the bad news is that we've kind of vilified anything that we consider unclean, anything that makes us feel unpure, perhaps the good news is that there's hope in the dirt. There's hope in the dirt. The Pharisees and the legalists of our time are obsessed with defining what dirt is, right? This thing is pure and that thing is unclean. This is defiling. This is the right way to do things. Notice our culture's obsession with best practices, right? Everything else is folly. But Jesus travels the narrow way by diving into the dirt. 
and finding out that God is already there, hanging out alongside microbacterium vacay, behind all the legalist definitions of dirt that have been applied to the poor and the homeless, the widowed and the outsider. In the next chunk of text in Mark, Jesus heals the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman, a dirty Gentile. Because he looks past the racial profiling and sees with this woman's pleas for her daughter, a child of God with the same heart as he has. In the end of chapter 7, Jesus cures a deaf man in the unclean, very unclean land of the Decapolis on the other side of the Jordan River. Remember, don't go to the other side of town because those kinds of people live there. And Jesus heals this man because they cried out to him from their hearts to lay his hand on the deaf man. And at the end of Mark's story, the beginning of ours, We see that God in Christ took on the muck of humanity, suffered the dirt of human sin, went through the mud of civil injustice, and with dirty, bloody arms held up on either side of the cross, declared once and for all that the ways of labeling and separating in the name of religious purity are done and over. In the kingdom of God, the last are first. And those with dirt on their hands are the first ones to be invited in. Ritual purists need not apply for a visa to the land of God's sovereignty. Now this is a paradigm shift for all of us, especially in the programmatic church. Because typically what we would do when we see a problem is to create a program or a nonprofit to deal with the issue. We often hire an underfunded staff to try to tackle said issue and hope for the best. Knock on wood. But it doesn't take long to realize that real change only happens when people set aside time to get their hands dirty. Listening to the misery that accompanies poverty, actually sitting down and holding hands in prayer with those we seek to love. I'm convinced that this separation, this unconscious separation of clean and unclean is what's killing our world. It started with the This American Life episode I listened to about segregation. The test scores between white and black students continuously got closer. The gap decreased after the time of Brown versus Board of Education. But right around 1989, when they stopped enforcing busing, the scores started to go apart again. In other words, the more segregated our schools have become, the worse that gap of test scores has become. And well, that's a a giant issue, one that I see firsthand and one I've got a little bit of skin in the game with this day, is youth programming. 
Now, for some, the youth movement that grew out of the 1960s created this great opportunity to create a separate program for youth that would address the psychological and spiritual needs of teenagers. And Lord knows, for all of us who have been teenagers, we have a lot of psychological and spiritual needs in that time of our life, right? We called this invention Youth Group, and behold, we said it was good. But then we hire a religious professional to deal with those messy, dirty youth. And we adults wash our hands clean of the mess and go on to deal with other adult issues. But the research that's coming from Kendra Creasy-Dean at Princeton and Christian Smith in Notre Dame and Kara Powell at Fuller all points to a really damning fact. We need more adults involved in the lives of our youth, not less. As we looked and wondered, why are our kids straying from the church when they go to college? The researchers have figured out an almost surefire way to make sure that they don't stray. If you can go and ask a college student right now to name five adults in their lives who know significant facts about them, their favorite sport, what career they're headed towards, the names of their siblings, that sort of thing, If you can find a student like that that can name five adults, the odds are extraordinarily high that those students have maintained the faith of their youth. For you statistics majors out there, that's a five-to-one ratio. Every child needs at least five adults in their faith family who care deeply enough about them to spend time with them. But what we typically do This is set up our kids with the opposite ratio. One adult for every five kids. And we wonder where it all went wrong. And in a culture where the 70-hour work week is not uncommon, the question we're confronted with in this gospel is, will we stop and get our hands dirty in the things that matter the most? The messy, mucky, muddled life of relationships with students. Kara Powell's book called Sticky Faith has a title, the first chapter, that is the summation of the most important part of her research. Through interviewing dozens of students and families and churches, she decided to call her first chapter this, You Get What You Are. You Get What You Are. If you preach the power of washing pots, then you're going to raise pot washers. If you say that Jesus is important, but there's no empirical proof of that in our lives, our children will mimic that. Nice religious words, but maybe nothing else. But the good news is that if we prove with our time, and our money, and our passion, our zeal, or in the words of Deuteronomy, our hearts and our minds and our souls, if we can show our love for God, our children are watching, and they will learn. Scholars call this the ZPD, the Zone of Proximal Development, or for any of you who've had siblings, the potty training effect. 
You know what I'm talking about. Children learn best, all of us learn best, from someone who's just a step above us, developmentally. You learn how to go to the potty much faster by watching a sibling than you do by listening to your parents, who are many steps beyond on the cognitive learning scale. It means that all of us are in need of somebody getting dirty in our messy lives. Every one of us need a mentor. Each and every person in this room needs somebody older than them to step into their lives and say, I care about God's story played out in your life. I care, and I want to walk with you in that. Getting dirty is uncomfortable. Amen? Perhaps you'll cry like I did when you get grass on your knees. Perhaps all of us will get angry because it means we have to spend less time working on our careers and more time actually interacting with the students or with the poor and impoverished who we're trying to help. Or perhaps we'll cry because in the midst of those relationships, we'll realize the deep-seated stains of white privilege and we'll fall before the cross. But when we look up, the test of this gospel is not whether we say that, oh, that's sad, and we throw some money or create a program to deal with the problem. But will you and I take heed to the lessons of Jesus' parables and get our hands dirty? I invite you to look at your hands. Take out your hands. You may not have noticed they were there, but they are. I invite you to take a posture of humility, and you can, if you're feeling Pentecostal, you can lift them up as high as you want, but for sure... Lift them forward. And let us pray to God. Creating God, let our prayers rise up like incense before you. You invite us into a world of delight. Instead of rigid obedience to rules and regulations, you desire the willing gift of our hearts. As we bring our hearts to you in worship, may the words we speak reveal your grace. As we bring our hands to you in our lives, may our actions embody your love planted deep within us. Renew us and create us anew for your work in the world. For the sake of your kingdom, in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.